Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with lead strength and conditioning coach at Surrey Sports Park, James Wilde. So this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is also sponsored by Vald Performance, creators of the Nordboard. So if you haven't heard of the Nordboard already, don't worry, I'll explain, it's really, really simple. The Nordboard is a really fast and accurate system for monitoring hamstring strength. So as practitioners, we can do very little about athlete age and previous hamstring injury, but what we can do something about is our athlete's eccentric strength, and that's where the Nordboard fits in really nicely. It isn't going to get your athlete's hamstrings bulletproof, but what it is going to do is give you the right information so you can make the right decisions at the right time. If you do want any more information, you can go over to Vald Performance, that's V-A-L-D performance.com, or email info at valdperformance.com. So thanks for tuning in to episode 64 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really excited to get on James Wilde. So James is a little bit of a rival of mine when it comes to lacrosse with our kind of respective uh, national teams, him with England and myself with Wales. But it was great to get him on and we discuss everything from athlete profiling to some work that he's done for his PhD, looking at uh, coaching sprints to sprinters and team sport athletes and the difference between the two and how that applies uh, practically in, in a coaching setting as well. So we, look, we also look at uh, change direction speed and his new book that he's bringing out with Jonas Dodu uh, and a little bit about his uh, his previous book as well. So it's a really interesting chat with James. Trust me, it's, it's worth a listen. So just before we get into the chat with James, uh, I just want to draw your attention to a validation paper that has been brought out by uh, some researchers at the High Performance Center in Madrid regarding the, the push band and its validation versus a a tendo I believe it was so that just kind of adds weight to what we've been or what I've been talking about over the last couple of months with regards to the push band so that obviously that, that validation has um, has kind of added some uh, a lot of credibility to what push have been saying for for a long time so if you do want to read that study I'll put a link on the site um, you can also go over to trainwithpush.com and they're offering a 30 minute 30 minute discussion with one of their sports scientists so if you are interested in getting a push band but you want to ask them a few questions i'm sure you can uh, you can sign up there and get in touch with one of their sports scientists to discuss any concerns or any questions that you have so get over to trainwithpush.com and have a little look around there's some great information on there from blogs to to a couple of podcasts and I think I made a bit of balls up last episode saying that they'd brought a podcast out. They haven't, it's an old one, and I've just, uh, I'm about three years too late on it. But there is some great episodes on there uh, and some really good information, so, so get, get yourself over there. So, on to the chat with James. I hope you enjoy episode 64 of the Pacing Performance Podcast, and I will speak to you soon. Hi guys, welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. 
So really excited and relieved to finally get this going after a few technical issues uh, last week. So we've got the lead strength and conditioning coach at Surrey Sports Park in James Wilde. So first, I just want to welcome James to the podcast. Uh, thank him for giving up his time on a, on a Thursday evening and just ask him to give us a little bit of uh, information on his, his background, education and what he's currently doing. So welcome to the podcast, James. Hey Rob, thanks for that and uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me on. I feel somewhat of a, a fraud compared to some of the other people you've had on but hopefully I'll have something of interest to say. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, I'll keep my background pretty short really because I'm sure people won't be that interested but as you said, I'm, I'm currently the lead SNC at Surrey Sports Park. been there for over four years now. So I've got a team of coaches that um, work with me, uh, one full-time guy and four paid interns currently. And I guess we we operate really like a, a mini EIS, if you like. So we work with multiple athletes and teams under one roof. Um, teams such as Surrey Storm, who are in the Super League for netball. Surrey Scorchers, who play in the British Basketball League. Hosts of other kind of athletes and teams as well, really. Um, we're quite fortunate in that in our building, we also have um, Harlequins are based there full time. Um, so I do a little bit of um, consultancy work for them from time to time around speed and strength power diagnostics. So I get involved with the coaches there. Who are, they're a good bunch, so it might be worth you picking their brains at one time on your podcast. Outside of that, I head up the SNC and athletic development for the England women's lacrosse team. So they were recently crowned European champions. Don't, don't uh, say it, James. Don't <laughs> say it. <laughs> um, and then obviously building up to the World Cup in 2017 for that. Um, in addition to that, I also provide uh, sprint biomechanics and strength power diagnostics testing services to a range of sprint athletes um, in West and East London. Um, and to top it off, I'm, I'm studying for a PhD in the biomechanics and motor control of accelerated sprinting. So I'm kind of spinning a lot of plates at the moment and trying to keep everything going, but it's all good. Prior to that, um, I've had various roles in kind of SNC and related positions, a stint with British Judo, that was great fun, um, a stint in tennis. Um, I was a head of training for a, a health and fitness training provider for a, about three years, which was good fun as well. And originally following my undergrad degree, I qualified as a soft tissue therapist so I back in the day then I worked as a soft tissue therapist and I guess what was known as like a fitness coach in the UK and in New Zealand as well which is great fun but um, anyway I'll, I'll stop rambling on about myself but that gives you a bit of a background. No that's cool mate so talk to us not too much because it's uh, maybe a sore subject at the minute for me personally <laughs> but um we, we I don't think we've had many people that have been involved in lacrosse we had uh, Rob Taylor who is at Smarter Team Training, who worked a lot with the Australians, uh, I think I, I think the women, um, in the last couple of years. But do you just want to talk to us a little bit about your kind of work with English lacrosse and your kind of experience in working with kind of a minority sport? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I started with, with the girls. It's been a year and a, a bit now. Um, so a year leading up to the European Champs that was held the summer this year. Prior to that, I had no idea about lacrosse whatsoever. Um, but having been involved with it for a while now, it's actually really quite a cool game. Um, so I guess my main interest really at the speed, agility oriented type stuff. And, and with lacrosse, it, it's one of the few games where, you know, acceleration is important from both standing and 
rolling starts. You get to you know run bends. There's lots of change of directions, and you know lots of stuff like that that kind of um, ring my bells, if you like. So from that point of view, it's highly athletic. It's slightly different to the men's game in that there's not the level of contact. So the girls need to be able to exploit space better, and you know therefore you know you know movement and, and change of direction and agility is really quite important. So so I quite like that, but um it's it's quite Americanized, and as we've talked before, it's a little bit odd going into uh, national anthems and the girls high-fiving each other and all that type of stuff. But <laughs> aside from that, the game itself, I've, I've actually grown to really like, and, and they're a good bunch of girls, so yeah, it's good fun. And my, my remit really is to oversee the athletic development of the, the senior elite squad or performance squad. Um, so that will vary really. A lot of it's remote coaching, um, which is quite tough to do because the girls are based all over the country. And then it will involve, say, once a month going to training camps weekends with the girls. I get, you know, some kind of input there from, you know, speed agility oriented work. And there's injured girls from a rehab point of view and what have you. And then there's a core group of about eight players that I see on a weekly basis. So that's quite good. So I get quite a bit of contact with them. But um, yeah, my, my kind of role is quite wide ranging, but yeah, all, all good fun. Cool. So I just want to move on to your, I've got your Twitter page open here with the, with your pictures and your, your videos and stuff that you've posted. And you get quite a lot of uh, interaction with the, I'm assuming, Excel sheets that you, you've put up, one specifically, which was your, um, your force velocity profile. Um, I don't know if you can recall, I think it may have been a, a while ago now, but there's a little graph in the, the top left-hand corner, obviously looking at um, actual profile and optimal profile. And I know I know you got a couple of questions on this at the time, but can you just talk to us about kind of why you're spending your time uh, on that force velocity profile and what you consider um, optimal compared to what is actual? Sure. What? I think what I'll do is kind of put it into the context of the rest of the profiling, if you like, of the yeah, test. Yeah, go for it. So, so it forms a part of a wider um, battery of tests that I'll typically do that I've kind of become relatively comfortable now with um, assessing, you know, if I want to um, test the strength power qualities that I feel are relevant to it, accelerating in particular, accelerating in terms of sprinting, then it forms a part of the rest of the testing battery. So I think maybe if I talk through all of the tests within that and, and, and explain it, then it'll probably make a little bit more, more sense. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. My tests really, that there's a number of them. One of them I have completely stolen and, and modified. Well, in fact, they're all stolen really, but one of them that I, I've stolen, uh, a hip extensor torque test from uh, John Goodwin at St. Mary's. And I've amend, amended that slightly, but but I'll do um, essentially a unilateral hip extensor torque test. So if you imagine someone lying under a bar that's fixed, so the hips are fixed under it, um, the heel is on on a false platform, and the other leg's up in the air. And imagine you're trying to hip thrust the bar up. Um, so we get and, and the, the the hip will be set to a certain angle, so you can get a peak force measure from the hip extensors. Um, and then if we multiply that by the distance from say the gross greater trochanter to point of contact on the force plate, then we can get hip, hip torque. Mm-hmm. So talking nice metric. So, so sh- shoulders on the floor or shoulders on a bench? Yeah, no, sh- shoulders okay. on the floor. Okay. The floor. And so with that, I mean, the, we all know that, you know, the hip extensors are pretty important for sprinting. Um, I think there's fairly recent work from JB Maureen that's coming out um, that literally today, I think there's a paper on it as well, but 
just showing that, you know, just prior to ground contact, the activation of the hamstring is pretty important. And then there's other research showing that during the first third, really, of um, ground contact, particularly in the first kind of few steps, that the hip extensors are um, like primarily responsible for horizontal accelerations, acceleration of the center of mass before that the ankles tend to kick in after that point. So the hip extensor test that I do for me is really quite an important one. Um, it's very reliable in terms of the peak force you get. One of the drawbacks with it is that it, it, it's really difficult to get reliability around RFD measures. Um, so I just kind of don't bother on that front now. But but aside from that, I, I still feels it feel that you know it gives me quite a bit of information to work on. Um, other than that, I'll, I'll go through um, some drop jump assessments, both bilateral and uh, unilateral. Um, and I guess my main reason for that is that regardless of the, the stage of the sprint that you're, you're in, your, your ankles are always going to dorsiflex before plantar flexing. And, and yes, okay, drop jump does involve the knee, but I use it more of a, a, an ankle stiffness reactive strength type measure because the interaction between the hips and the ankles is really quite an interesting point. So I alluded to the fact that the hip extensor moments um, are primarily what tend to drive you forward in the first third of stance in, in, in acceleration anyway. Um, and then the, the ankles typically kick in for the, the, the other two thirds um, or, the, or the remainder of the stance. So it, it's all very well having these, these powerful hip extensors, but if you're then not able to stabilize and, and be stiff through the ankle, and then to have the elasticity to kind of snap the ankle back and propel you forward for the the, the um, remainder of the stance, then it's not really going to be that beneficial. So yes, hip extensor torque and strength and power is important, but you then need the, the stiffness and the elasticity around the ankles to be able to transmit that force through the floor. So I'll, I'll, I'll have my um, RSI measures that I'll do bilaterally, unilaterally to, to help kind of assess that side of things as well. Um, and yeah, you get really quite an interesting interplay between the hip and the ankle. So one of the common trends that I've seen quite a lot, especially with faster people, is that if they're rubbish with their RSI, then their hip extensor talks are usually pretty good. So whether it's some kind of coping mechanism, they know that, well, their ankles aren't going to propel them forward that, you know, to a great extent during stance. So they're potentially using their hip extensors more to try and counter that. Um, it, it's quite an interesting relationship and I often find it as well on people who say have had a, an injury um, so that there's a sprinter at the moment that I'm working with who um, relatively recently had a stress fracture of his ankle and his RSI on that side single leg as you'd expect it pretty poor but his hip extensor strength on that side is much greater than the non-injured side so it's his coping mechanism of essentially trying to pull himself through ground contact rather than pushing off sooner through the ankle. Um, so that that's a really kind of interesting relationship to me. And you, you'll sometimes see, um, you'll see those strength imbalances, if you like, in how they actually sprint. So it, it's quite common, not always, but with that type of relationship and imbalance is that if someone's weaker or less reactive through the ankle and stronger through the hip extensor on that side, then they'll tend to strike further forward of their center of mass and essentially pull themselves more through ground contact. So potentially risky in terms of, you know, does it increase the likelihood of, of overutilizing the hip extensors and raise the risk of a hamstring strain, particularly in the later stage of acceleration? Quite possibly. 
So, um, you know, for me, that, that, that area is interest, not just from a performance point of view, but also from a, an injury prevention side of things as well. Um, anyway, so, I, so in, in a way, I, I kind of place those, those two tests almost more important than the false velocity profiling side of things. Now, obviously, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the false velocity profiling side of things, and I think it helps tell you a lot. But the fact that, you know, sprinting is much more hip extensor and, and ankle kind of driven as opposed to the knee, um, the, the, the false velocity profiling is definitely a useful adjunct, um, but it's kind of, um, you know, almost secondary to those. And when I say false velocity profiling at the moment, I'm, I'm referring to it in, in the squat jump rather than the sprinting, which we'll probably touch on a little bit later. So in the, the squat jump force velocity profiling, this, this gives me more of my knee concentric power and rate of force development type qualities. Um, so the knee plays a more of a, a power generating role during the early stages of acceleration, where if you imagine closer to top end speed, its role is more around power dissipation. So the squat jump force velocity profiling for me is more related really to the first few steps of a sprint when, when you're accelerating in the initial stages. And I use the methods of um, Pierre Samazino and colleagues. And one of the things that it allows you to do through ridiculous maths that I'll not profess to fully understand is that it enables you to determine what the optimal levels of force and velocity qualities would be for an individual to maximize their squat jump height at a given peak power at that time. So we know that peak power is, for example, related to jump height, but it doesn't account for all of the jump performance. Um, and an imbalance of force and velocity has been shown to be worth up to, I think I read in one of their papers, up to about 30% of performance, which is you know quite, quite considerable really. Now this is obviously the, the, the extreme end of the scale, but um, it, it's still, you know, even if it's a 10% difference or a 5%, it, 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 all, it all makes a difference. So what Samazino and co have, have managed to do is work out what the favorable levels of force and velocity are specific to the individual and with their peak power at that time in mind to optimize the jump push-off performance. And one of the really cool things that you can do is um, by making a tweak to the equations is that you can work out what the optimal profile would be if pushing off at an angle more horizontally, so say around 40 degrees, for example, because the, me the mechanical constraints are quite different when you're pushing off vertically as opposed to more horizontally. So you effectively have to push less against your body weight uh, when pushing horizontally so that the, the, the velocity demands become greater. So that false velocity profiling for me, I, I find quite useful. Um, as I say, in a way, it's um, secondary to my hip extensor and, and um, drop jump measures, but but still quite important, particularly in the first few steps. Cool. No, that's really interesting. So just a couple of things that I had uh, off the back of that. So the the angle of the the hip torque um, assessment. How do you how do you determine that? So the angle where the hip is at. Yeah. Say. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it's up to you, and you can kind of rationalize it however you want. Um, so the um, greater the hip angle, so that the straighter, the, the more extended the hip is, the more hamstring dominant it's going to be. And then the, the smaller the hip angle, um, then the more kind of glute oriented it's going to be, if you like. I, I, I tend to go off about 40 degrees of the hip, so 40 degrees of hip flexion. So for me, if, if I'm considering like, I don't know, the first kind of 10, 15, 20 meters or something, then at the point of striking ground contact and moving through the first third, then I'm not going to be a million miles off that if we were to average it over that those um, steps. 
Cool. And and the the next one was the levels at the side. How have you determined um, the the kind of uh, what fits into what level? Oh, okay. So so you're saying like so the standards table and yeah. What, sorry, yeah, the standards table yeah, below. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that that's really from from collecting a lot of data from a lot of different athletes, um, and it's specific to the athlete group, if you like. So. Um, you know, so so some of the the rugby players that we looked at, some of the Quinn guys and what have you, uh, the the back three who are who are fast, they typically score high in all those tests, or they have a nice balance of all of them. And so I've literally gone right out of all the data I've got of people who are typically you know getting the the, the or who are the fastest and getting the best scores. And really, it, it is just individualised to sport and, and and position as much as possible. It's a little bit of a finger in the air jobby, you know. Don't get me wrong. But um, but typically the people that run fast that tend to tend to do better in those tests and those scores are based off the back of that. Cool. And the the last one on this was uh, you you mentioned creating that force velocity profile from sprints. Do you just want to tell us why you do that and how you do that? So for the the force velocity profiling um, in a sprint that I did, and this is a really interesting area which is gaining quite a lot of momentum really, but it's again, it's stolen from Samazino and Maureen and and, and those types of uh, researchers and it enables you to run a force velocity and power profile for athletes, but during a sprint. So obviously it's going to be a lot more um, relevant in terms of sprinting rather than just a jump. I I haven't got a radar gun, so I, I, I use it through knowing split times. So I'll take uh, 0-5 meter split times through the use of a high-speed camera and then 10, 20, 30, 40 meter split times with light gates. And I'll then input this data along with various info on, on the athlete in terms of their height, their mass and what the temperature is, uh, where we are, into a, a ridiculous spreadsheet which then and spits out the relevant information for me. And so knowing an individual's full velocity profile during a sprint, it helps give you a bit more information than just simply knowing split times alone. So if you can identify that an individual's force or velocity capabilities are low, for example, then it may be that your training can focus on the deficient area to bring about favorable changes to their force velocity profile, then their sprint power and ultimately sprint performance. So it could be quite useful to, to monitor. So it's one of the things I do with the England lacrosse girls on a you know quite a regular basis. One of the things I'm trying to identify is how different training programs affect an athlete's force velocity profile during a sprint. And what I've seen so far is that there isn't necessarily a, a clear response. So, for example, some individuals in response to a more force-type program that might include, um, I don't know, say heavy sled work and heavy hip thrusting and, and similar type activities. Um, so some of them are increasing their force capabilities um, when monitored through the sprinting, but for others it has the opposite effect and it's driven up the, the velocity side of the equation. Um, so it's difficult for me to have complete control over what everyone does and so the effects of the programming in the gym and outside may not be a true reflection of uh, or, or its effect on the force velocity profiling in the sprint but it's still quite an interesting area and, and, and in my opinion it, it's going to come down to you know a, a lot of factors of how someone responds um, in terms of their training history or other physical reasons. Um, or not that that might kind of unlock their potential to bring about more favorable changes to their full velocity profile when when sprinting. Cool. Well, I'll I'll move on. Um, just another point that that I had, but just before I go, um, on the the post below it, that's a that's a lovely eight meter triple hop, by the way. Oh, um, ridiculous! Ginger yeah. people can fly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so yeah, just next thing was, um, obviously you've done extensive work looking at the differences between sprinters and and team sport athletes, rugby players. We spoke to Jonas, uh, or I spoke to Jonas a little bit about that and, and JB. Uh, do you just want to give us your take in the, the kind of intricacies that you're seeing, um, how them two groups of athletes differ? Sure. Yeah, so I, I guess this ventures a little bit more into what my PhD is about. But um, first, I should add it that, you know, Jonas is a great guy, a very good coach. And so those of you out there that, that don't know him, it, it's well worth getting to know him because he's the... He's a good guy, very good coach, and he, he's very generous with his, with his knowledge. Um, but yeah, so in, in terms of my, my PhD, um, I'm looking at early acceleration and first study, I'm looking at the comparisons between how rugby players and sprinters sprint to see, you know, are there any differences and all, all their commonalities and, you know, what, what kind of questions does that throw up? And yeah, it's quite, it's quite interesting. I'll, you, you kind of see the differences that you'd imagine. So um, sprinters will typically touch down with a more positive shin angle. They'll, they'll touch down with a foot closer to their center of mass. They'll produce a greater toe-off distance. So if you imagine at the point of toe-off, the horizontal distance from their, their foot on the ground to the center of mass is greater. So they project themselves at this lower angle, a higher knee position, you know, all, all the type of things that we typically associate with being um, you know, you know, fast. Yes, we, we see that really with team sport athletes, um, in fact, not, not just team sport athletes, but even sprinters, from, from a standing start compared throughout the blocks, it is a, it's a different task. So what we see is when you then compare the sprinters from a standing start to team sport athletes like in rugby from a standing start, there are still those differences, but they're, they're much reduced. Um, so for me, the, those sprint athletes have a, a certain physiology that, that allows them to get into that type of position, whereas like a, a traditional rugby player may nec not necessarily have that. So that, that you know that they'll self-organise themselves around the physical characteristics that they have. Now that's not necessarily self-optimising. Doesn't mean that they couldn't sprint better, but we definitely see them organise their body quite different to sprint athletes. Now that's not all rugby players because some of the faster guys do as well. But what, one of the things I often see with people training team sport athletes to be fast is that they get very preoccupied with this head down, forward body lean, you know, foot contact, very close to their center of mass and, and all that type of stuff that you associate with sprinters coming out of the blocks. And, and for me, the, you know, the minute you're looking at the floor in that forward lean position, your peripheral vision goes, you're, you're kind of hindered from that front and, and you're, you're really, you're out of the game. And when you consider that virtually all maximum effort accelerations in, in team sports and football and rugby take take place from rolling starts, um, you know, from jogging or, or walking and, you know, relatively high speed running, then they're already in a more of an upright position and adopting the type of postures, I guess, that, that you'd see in the, the later acceleration phase of a, of a 100 meter sprint. So my preferred short sprint assessment rather than a, a, a kind of a standing start over 10 meters would be from right rolling starts. So I quite like rolling starts um, or looking at five to 10 meter split times within a 10 meter sprint. And, you know, this can be can be made reliable if you use, use high speed kind of footage. And, and what it means really is that, that, that there's an even greater emphasis from the hips to accelerate them forward. So you know, later stages of acceleration or, or going from a rolling start, you, you can kind of feel your hamstrings kicking in more. And, you know, that tends to be where where people might, you know, more likely to pull their hammy from a from a rolling start into a rapid acceleration rather from a standing start. 
and I, I tried like a, a very traditional sprint approach before and I've struggled to see impact on the pitch and, and I've seen it with other people as well and um, so so much of my acceleration for, for team sports is done from a variety of different rolling starts and of different speeds I'll do a fair amount of work where the athletes have to accelerate after running arcs so of different gradients and you know that that's quite common in something like rugby so if you imagine a you know a player just uh, running an arc around the back of another player and then having to accelerate boom onto a ball it's a different acceleration from a standing start they've got to play head up rugby so you know they need to see what options are available to them and then there's a less in stable environment that, that they're involved in as well so you know having to accelerate after being knocked off balance Again, using the example of rugby, someone may have, say, broken the gain line, but was slowed down. Um, and in the process, they need to kind of reorganize themselves before kind of accelerating away again, or that the floor might be wet. And so we can't afford to adopt these really forward, forward lean positions and, and push fully through the stance because we like to, to, you know, slip over and, and land on our face. So don't get me wrong, I, I think like the, the typical start mechanics are useful for everyone to learn and, and there will be the odd occasion in team sport environments where that's potentially important but for me a more of a rolling acceleration is more applicable more transferable especially if it's used in a variety of different circumstances like, I, like I've explained and, and for me that I, I feel there's more of a transfer and I, I like to think I've, I've seen a little bit more success with that. I'll, I'll still use a lot of track-based sprint drills for team sport athletes and then they can serve as an excellent way to introduce, you know, low-level low plyo type activity. And, you know, and, and for me, they can help drive certain physiological adaptations that are beneficial from a technique point of view. So if we go back to what I was talking about earlier, if it is more desirable for us to strike closer to our center of mass, then what we'll find is that cueing someone to do so in, in an acute situation will, will slow them down. So that they have not got the physiology around the ankle to be able to cope with the shorter ground contact time and that stiffness that's needed to then propel themselves forward. So they'll naturally strike a little bit further out. So what we need to do, in my opinion, is, is build the physiology around the ankle to help them to be able to strike closer to their center of mass. It's going to create a shorter ground contact time because their center of mass is going to um, have to travel at a shorter distance before it goes past the foot. Where, uh, the point that they extend but if you haven't got that extra stiffness capability if you like then you, you're going to sacrifice performance somewhere so for me you've got to build the physiology and yes you know use drills and what have you but we, we need to accept that in a lot of cases when we cue someone in an acute situation their sprint performance is probably going to suffer now it doesn't mean that those cues aren't um, going to be beneficial so it might drive you know, preferable movements that you want to see. But if it comes to an acute situation and I want someone to run as fast as they can, I won't cue I won't cue anything. I'll just let them run as fast as they can. Yes, I might use training to use cues to help bring about certain movements that I want and then hope that those movements in combination with building the physiology I want to help, those movements within the gym and, and what have you, then over time we'll see a progression to those uh, type of movements that we want them to hit. So whether that's, you know, the more positive shin angle and, and, and a foot strike closer to the centre of mass. Kind of gone off on a tangent slightly there. I can't remember what the original question was. <laughs> I don't know. I don't really care, to be honest. That was great, so don't worry about it. Um, so you obviously you've you've kind of taken us through a bit of a journey on, um, on the differences between the 
the uh, sprinters and the, and the team sport athletes. And you, you've got, again, I'm, I'm referring to your Twitter um, here, putting some videos on with the lacrosse girls that you've you've done over, over time. Yeah. Do you just want to talk to us a little bit about the kind of journey that they took to actually get to them sort of drills and uh, why you would kind of go through that journey? Sure. Is this so you can steal stuff? 100%. Okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, I mean, for me, like, lacrosse is a game where it's all about speed and agility, really. I mean, yes, they've got to have an underlying, you know, aerobic capacity and what have you to repeat explosive bouts and last the game. But, you know, if you've got good movers, um, Obviously, they've got to have good stick skills and what have you. But outside of that, if you've got good movers and people that can change direction at the right time, all that type of stuff, then you know you're onto a winner. So much of my work really for those um, players is to help drive that. So it help drive their change of direction ability and in response to the stimulus and produce the right movement at the right time. And I, I think for me, what probably my my best assessment for how well they do that is, is simply watching them in a match um, and watching the video feedback from that. So I'd, I'd, I'll use that to help profile players. So, you know, do they struggle in one-on-one situations in confined spaces? Or, you know, if they have a, a, a longer run-up, how do they deal with being able to change direction when trying to get around an opponent? Or if they're defending, are they able to you know, maintain a, a, a low or a stable head position so the head's not bobbing up and down when they're moving laterally? They keeping their head at the same level, so so for me initially, like the, the video feedback and the footage that I see, it is pretty important to help drive the type of training that I do. And I, I think that you know that, that there's a general underlying physical qualities that are necessary to help us decelerate and change direction, and that you know general coordination is required to reorient the limbs in space so that we can swerve, cut, spin, and and, and whatever else we need to do. So in, in developing these qualities. I'd, I'd still not delve too far away from the, the type of physical lower limb physical requirements we talked about with the testing battery earlier. I still think they, they, they tell us a fair bit um, about, um, you know, or how they can help drive the type of training that you might do for the physical qualities of the legs required to change direction. But all of that type of stuff, you know, potentially means nothing if they can't do it at the right time in response to a stimulus. I'll, I'll get back to that in a minute because I, I, I think planned change of direction drills at the moment get quite a beating um, and I, I still think that there's a strong place for them. So if I talk about the lacrosse girls, so some of them, for example, um, haven't really been taught in the early stages of when they picked up a lacrosse stick of how to cut well and, and how to move. And so they tend to avoid it more often than they should. So that they'll kind of sh- shirk responsibility if you like and ship the ball onto someone else rather than attempting to take someone on. And for me, that comes down partly to when they first learned how to do that movement, if they weren't good, or let's say that they were overweight at the time or what have you and, and avoided that movement ever since, that they've you know, resisted that movement ever since. And so now they might be physically more capable when they're older, but because they haven't explored that movement, they haven't got any confidence and they don't realise that they're, they're able to do it, if you like. So I think... Change of direction stuff that's pre-planned can be quite useful in that sense. I also think pre-planned change of direction stuff can be pretty useful for um, attack players, probably more than defensive players. And, and I think that's the same with um, other team sports as well. So, you know, if you're in a one-on-one situation, quite a lot of the time, if uh, an attack player pulls out a fancy move, that fancy move is actually pre-planned. 
So sometimes giving athletes more tools in their box to help beat players, even if it is pre-planned, is not necessarily an issue. Now, don't get me wrong. But again, it, it you know it, it doesn't make a difference if um, you know they can't produce it when they need to in response to a stimulus and what have. And and a lot of my um, work is very much in a reactive environment, and you're never going to be able to produce, especially defensively, the type of change of directions that um, in training that, that to, to replicate a match situation unless it's done by reading opposition kinematics and reacting into in, in what they do. So for the, for the lacrosse girls, um, I guess I want to ensure that, yes, there's that physical capability from their strength power point of view, that they're able to generally move pretty well in pre-planned situations, that um, they've got a lot of tools within their toolbox to be able to you know, bring open within the game, and then they're able to, you know, move at the right time in the right situation, making the right decisions by what they're presented within a match. So I'll um, do a lot of stuff that is fairly um, reactive in nature. So some of the videos I think I've put up on Twitter might be, you know, one-on-ones where they essentially they've got to try and beat each other to a, to a certain cone or they're, you know, back-to-back -back and turn around and got to beat each other and go through a particular space. So, yes, it, it's all very well building these underlying capacities. And, and if you like, I guess we're giving them, you know, movement opportunities to exploit, but they may not take you up on that offer or that invitation that you've given to them unless they've had a chance to calibrate that within a more um, reactive environment. So it comes, you know, down to the whole constraining the task and what have you to bring about the favorable movements that you want, but under pressure and in reaction to the opposition. So do you, th do you think like a game game like lacrosse where you can kind of like almost like a lot of American sports, you can set positions so you can kind of manipulate things reasonably easy, especially in the attacking sense, where you can create a situation that is that the girls can execute a, a pre-planned change direction. Do you think that lends it, lacrosse lends itself to that type of training? Sometimes, don't don't get me wrong. When when I was saying that, you know, I think pre-planned change direction stuff has a place. It's certainly not my primary focus. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. And it's, but but yeah, I one hundred percent do. Um, so there's and, and again, I mean, with, with something like lacrosse, and I think this is reflective of the fact that it's you know still a developing game and what have you. I think there's more opportunities to exploit it at that level. So in in simple one-on-one situations, you know where. I've given, I've brought, say, a couple of attack players over. We said, right, we're going to try out this movement or this movement, this type of footwork, and let's see what happens. And where defenders are, you know, pretty used to seeing what that attacker does, if they produce some kind of footwork that they haven't seen them do before, then they're a little bit unsure as to which way they're going to go, and they're less likely to be able to, you know, push them back or intercept them. So I think that that's quite easy to do, on, in, especially in one-on-one -on -one situations. Um, so, you know, whether it's like a, a feint cut where they might jump slightly in the air, dummy the foot out to one side, but then push the other foot to the ground and go in the other direction, you know, that's kind of a pre-planned activity. Um, and, and I do think there's scope for that within such environments. Mm -hmm. Cool. So I just want to move on to the last couple of things um, and just discuss the the book that that me and Jonas couldn't actually get our heads together and think of the title, yeah. which was absolutely scandalous. Yeah. Um, just want to talk to us a little bit about, and I know it's been um, probably, is it a couple of years since it came out? Uh, it's a year and a half, I think now. Okay. Yeah. Just want to talk to us a little bit about that book. And I know you and um, 
you and Jonas have got something up your sleeve for, for later in the year or later in 2016? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, actually, let's start with that because I'm, I'm kind of more interested in that now. Yeah, cool. Let's oh, do it. the other one. But yeah, so, um, yeah, so myself and Jonas are uh, uh, writing a book together that's really going to be based around like sprint drills. So what are your go-to drills? Why do you use them? If you see X, Y, and Z happening to someone and they're sprinting, what are the type of drills that can help that situation, help you know, um, correct um, errors that you might see, or how can it complement your, your wider approach to, to correcting those issues? So it's a book that I, I think is um, missing, really, within what's available. Um, so a lot of people will do general sprint drills, which is fine, but I don't think people will necessarily use them in a targeted fashion as such. Um, so it'd be a little bit of guesswork or, um, you know, they'll just do them because everyone else does them. Whereas there might be a handful of drills that are really important for someone to help drive a specific movement change and, and, and not someone else. Um, so it's in its very early stages still. We've, we've been saying that for a long time now, but, but um, we're, we're slowly getting there on that front. But yeah, hopefully um, the idea is that um, summer next year that it will be kind of complete-ish. Um, we'll see. And going, going going back to yeah, so the, so the original book I, I wrote, uh, strength training for speed, and thank you to you and Jonas for mentioning that because I think I've got a few um, copies sold of the back oh, of that. And oh, the, happy days! Yeah, that that wasn't my mum. <laughs> even though we forgot the title. Yeah, even though you yeah. forgot the title, so, so that's all good. Um, but yeah, so that really was. I, I used to find it quite frustrating and not not having um, kind of a, a single resource on on the area. So you know, strength and power training for speed, I'd often find, you know, a, a really small book on the topic or, you know, be given a, a chapter or a paragraph here and there. And I thought it'd be quite handy to, um, you know, kind of have one resource that, you know, tells you as much as possible about that area. And that was really what kind of spawned the idea. And the other thing as well that frustrates me with a lot of texts is that, you know, they're, they're often very theory oriented, but then don't necessarily tell you how to put that into practice. So one of the things that I've tried to do with the book is, um, you know, give a grounding of the theory, um, physiology, biomechanics of sprinting, and then talk, right, so how can you then help influence that from a strength training point of view? Um, there, there's lots of different programs in there. You know, none of them are, are perfect. There's never going to be a perfect program, and it was my thoughts at the time, but lots of programming options there for beginner, intermediate, advanced athletes, lots of um, images of different exercises and stuff. So... It was a book really aimed at kind of more, I guess, beginner coaches and, and athletes and people out there. But but also there's, you know, I think there's still a fair bit in there for more experienced people. And it's received, uh, you know, some some positive feedback. Um, but, yeah, so that's the long and short of the book. Cool. So just to round up, um, where, where can people keep up to date with what you've got going on? Uh, um, good question. Yeah, well, so, so I'm, I'm on Twitter every now and then. I have a little flurry on there. Um, so I can't remember. I think I'm wildy underscore JJ or something like that. Um, outside of that, I don't, I don't, I don't have a Facebook account or it kind of got me too much in trouble with that. <laughs> um, I don't really have many other things. People are welcome to email me if they want. So my email is j.wild, that's W-I-L-D at surrey.ac.uk. Um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's about it, really. Did, did I see you doing a bit of speaking at the start of start next year? Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the Middlesex um, the one. student S and C conference in March. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna do a bit on that. Anthony Turner, who's another good guy who 
he'd be worth getting on. Yes, he would. He would. Um, he's a good guy. Yeah, so he's asked me to talk. And so with that, I'm going to delve into a bit more detail about the technical differences in acceleration between team sport and sprint athletes and, you know, go into that in a little bit more detail. Cool. Well, I'll, uh, I'll put links to all them on the site as as per usual. And I'll um, I'll definitely remember the title of the book. <laughs> as, I, as I discuss it going forward so um, I've got plenty to steal uh, plenty of ammo there so that's that's great but um, just to just thank you for your time um, and sorry for the mix up last week but we finally got it done and um, thanks again and I'll uh, I'll speak to you soon that's great thanks very much Rob thanks mate see you later bye thanks for tuning in to episode 64 of the Pacey Performance Podcast I hope you enjoyed the chat with James so this is going to be the last episode before Christmas, just due to the uh, Christmas falling on a Friday. Don't particularly want to uh, record one and and release it on Christmas Eve. I just don't think it'll do the person who's involved justice. So there's going to be one between Christmas and New Year, and then we'll uh, we'll crack back on in January. And there's loads of great guests coming up in uh, in January and February. Uh, really excited to uh, to bring you them guys. So thanks for your support over 2015. Hope it ended on a bit of a high with James um, and I will see you or speak to you in 2016.